Uh, if you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3 and um, put your thumb in it. We'll get there in just a minute. For several weeks now, we've been cruising along in our series, Jesus, the True and Better. And what we've been doing is primarily we're looking at the left side of our Bible uh, to see how God is intentionally placed and planted types, what we're calling types, these, uh, these plants that sort of prefigure, foreshadow, and anticipate Jesus, so that when we get to the New Testament uh, and we find Jesus, God's Savior who emerges, we recognize Him because God has created in His people this gospel instinct, this theological memory for what has been planted in the Old Testament or what we're calling the left side of our Bible. So in this study on typology, uh, so far we've really focused, we're going to look at figures, features, and institutions. And so far we've really been focused primarily um, on figures. That is, we're looking at uh, persons, right? Not numbers, figures, but persons uh, in the Old Testament. So we started off with Jesus who is the true and greater Adam, right? Jesus who passed his test in the garden, a more difficult garden than Adam's garden. In Adam, his sin was transferred to us, imputed to all of mankind. He sinned federally as our representative. But Jesus, in his obedience to go willingly to the cross, through him, through repentance and faith, his righteousness can be imputed to us. So we're fallen in Adam, we're recovered in Christ. Jesus is a true and better Adam. Jesus is a true and greater Abel, as we saw, who was innocently slain and has blood that calls out for our acquittal, not for our condemnation. Then we looked at Jesus, who is the true and the greater Abraham. Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave the comfortable and familiar and to go into the void to create a new people of God. And Christ is the same thing, but in a greater way. And we looked at Jesus, who is the true and greater Isaac, whose willing sacrifice, Isaac, whose willing sacrifice conveyed his father's love for God. But now we can say we know God loves us because he was willing to sacrifice his son, his one and only son, for us. And then last week we saw that Jesus is the true and the greater Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his power to save others. And so what we're trying to focus on is that these stories, sometimes what we think of as just Old Testament individual isolated stories, are not that, but they're a part of one story, one great drama, that's the story of Jesus. These figures, these features, these institutions are planted and placed so that we might recognize Christ. This is all about him. When I was a kid growing up in Southern California in Apple Valley, um, one of the, my hobbies was collecting baseball cards. Anybody, any of you collect baseball cards when you were little? Yes, we got one. All right, a couple. Anybody still have some? We could Basketball, that counts. Trading cards. We'll say trading cards. Well, I started with baseball cards, and one day my friend Merlin and I were out riding our bikes. And you got to like a sentence that begins with, my friend Merlin and I were out riding bikes. <laughs> We were out riding uh, our BMX bikes around town, just around the corner from my house, and somebody had lost a whole box, a whole set of 1984 Tops baseball cards. 
And they were just strewn all over the side of the road. And so we, as you know, upstanding children, uh, decided to pick up the litter. And so we went and picked up all of the cards. And um, my friend Merlin said, Eric, you can have all of them. I just want one. There's one card in this set that I want. It's the 1984 Tops Steve Garvey. It's like, I don't, I don't care. You can have the one. If I can have the many, that would be great. So we're picking them all up. And some of them are just between the road and, and the side of this chain link fence. And some of them are on the other side of the chain link fence. And wouldn't you know who was on the other side of the chain link fence? Steve Garvey. Face up. And there he is. And so we kind of sat there at the fence looking through, and there was a problem with this particular card because one of the inhabitants of the house had already laid claim to it. Fido, or whatever his name was, had placed a key deposit on Steve Garvey. <laughs> and that's where Steve Garvey stayed, right there. Well, I picked up all the other cards and went home and learned that, hey, guess what? Some of these are worth money. This is interesting. And I began to collect cards, and a little entrepreneur was born. And... Um, after a while, I took great interest in one particular player, Nolan Ryan. Uh, if you guys remember Nolan Ryan, the Texas pitcher, was a Christian. I thought he was particularly great because when somebody charged the mound, he put him in a headlock and gave him noogies for a little while, if you remember that video. But I was interested in Nolan Ryan, and my mom encouraged this collecting, and she went to a baseball card show for me once because I was gone on a soccer trip. So my mom went to buy a baseball card for me. I gave her my $12 and I said, I want the best Nolan Ryan card you can find. So she went with my $12 and bought a 1976 Nolan Ryan in mint condition. It cost her $16 and she came home and gave it to me and said, you owe me $4 worth of chores. That's how my mom works. But growing up and sort of pouring over this, it was called the Beckett, if you know anything about cards. It was the value book. And you could chart your cards to see if they were going up and how much they were worth. And my Nolan Ryan card peaked at like 84 bucks in my childhood. Bought it for 16. It went up to 84. And I looked, because I know some of you will be curious before the service today, and right now it's at $200, which means I can buy a tank of gas, right? <laughs> That's it. But in these, this Beckett book, looking at values, there was this one particular card. It was like the Holy Grail. It was the white whale, the one that you'd only ever heard about and never seen. It was the 1956 Bowman Mickey Mantle rookie card. And it was worth thousands. And we would just talk about it as kids. Have you ever seen one? Oh, I saw a picture once and, and this kind of thing. And I, I took a look at it uh, before service again this morning. And today, if you happen to have that card, it is worth $45,000. And if you've got one, let's talk. I'll trade you a Steve Garvey for it. Right? <laughs> this collection of Old Testament figures that we've been looking at for these past many weeks uh, that serve as types to ultimately point us to Jesus for Hebrew children, young and old, of all of the folks that we've mentioned, their holy grail, the white whale, the one that they would have pursued, the one that they loved the most, would have been Moses. Considered to be really the greatest man that had ever lived by most of the Hebrew kids. Uh, and so you, if you can imagine a 1527 BC, Moses, rookie card in mint condition, right? 
This is what they would have desired. This was their hero. He was the patriarch of patriarchs. The creme de la creme. This was the hero. Moses was legend. And so here's just some of his stats that you would find on the back of a baseball card. Something like this. Moses had been miraculously protected as a baby, right? Put into the river in a lined basket and retrieved by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. Providentially, God spared his life. God spoke to Moses face to face. The Bible says, as a a friend speaks to a friend. And he spoke to him also out of a burning bush and other theophanies. Moses led Israel out of Egypt and out of bondage. He led him across the Red Sea in a pretty dramatic event. He himself had seen the glory of God in one of the more striking passages in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, where God declares who he is to his people, Yahweh, Yahweh, right? Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, maintaining love for generation after generation. He would, uh, Moses, when he would go into his tent of meeting to encounter the Lord and to commune with him, would be so close and so connected to the glory of God that when he emerged, his face would be radiant, would be glowing, such that he wore a veil. The veil, he's watching a fellow walk around town with a veil, a little creepy, but not as creepy as his glowing face underneath. That's how closely he connected and encountered the living God. Moses, when they got to Sinai and the others were too scared to go up the mountain because God's presence was quaking and shaking the whole place, Moses did go up. He brought the Ten Commandments down. He authored the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, as God directed him. Moses, his name became synonymous with the law, the law of, we don't say the law of God, we say the law of Moses. Through Moses, the plans for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant were given, which we might not think too much of, but these were institutions that helped a sinful people know how to address and worship a holy God. And he oversaw uh, the building of these things. And even at the end of his life, Moses graciously handed things over to Joshua, his protege, to take the people of God in the promised land. Moses was pretty great. He was great. In fact, so great that in the eyes of Israel, it might have almost have been a bit of a problem. In some ways, his celebrity status caused people to praise Moses more so than they praise God. And so in our passage today in Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews highlights, yes, Moses was great, but he takes us from there to see as great as Moses was in these errands for which God had him, Jesus is greater so Hebrews 3.1, therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. 
So let me give you a little bit of context for the book of Hebrews. We've, we've been in it a fair bit in this series, but just in case you don't know, the book of Hebrews is written to a primarily Jewish congregation, which you might gather from the title, Hebrews, right? Um, and this Jewish community, by and large, had accepted Christ. They had recognized the revelation of God in the Old Testament was leading us to receive Jesus as the Messiah. They saw him, recognized him, and received him as Messiah. They became followers of his. And by doing so, they encountered intense persecution. In fact, a Jewish Christian in the first century world probably endured more persecution than almost anybody. Because in leaving their Jewish community, they were ostracized by them as those who had moved on and embraced Christ rather than simply remaining Jewish. And in becoming Christians, they joined a league of folks that was persecuted by almost everybody in the first century world. So Judaism was generally accepted and recognized by Rome and given some level of protection. But in leaving it behind, they then endured sort of a twofold or two-pronged attack of persecution. And you can imagine their disappointment. We've received Jesus. We've become Christians. Shouldn't our life get better? But in fact, now it's harder. It's gotten worse as we experience it. And so the thinking in this, in this community was basically, you know, maybe we should leave this Jewish or this Jesus guy behind and just retreat back into the safe enclave of Judaism. Maybe we could just go back to being God-fearing and, you know, not hang on with this Jesus bit. And so the whole point of the book of Hebrews, if we were to wrap it up in a sentence, is basically this. You cannot reject Christ, whom God has sent as your Savior, and be in good standing with God. And that message is right there for all of us. If you take nothing else today, I would want you to hear that. You cannot reject Christ, God's means of salvation, and be okay with him. That is the means by which sinners find forgiveness in Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews writes together kind of this the string of argument sort of showing the supremacy of Christ. He starts with Jesus is better than the angels, and then he's better than Moses, which is the passage we're looking at today, then better than these great priests of Aaron and Melchizedek. And this is kind of fun. In a couple weeks when I'm out of town fly fishing, I left the priest Melchizedek for Pastor Adam to preach about. <laughs> So Pastor Mark got, you know, Cain and Abel on Mother's Day, and Adam gets Melchizedek. So. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus is better than Abraham. And so along this, this line of argumentation, the author of Hebrews compares Jesus with the great Moses, as we've seen. And verse, verse 2 of this passage in Hebrews 3 makes it absolutely clear, Moses was one who was appointed by God. He was sent on errand for God. Moses was not just a self-proclaimed social activist, you know, with a powerful family behind him. God sent him. God appointed him. And so that's our first point here. Moses was appointed by God to rescue Israel. And so I want to actually look at this theophany. This is where God appears to Moses in the burning bush and commissions him and basically sends him out to his errand. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, your left side, Exodus 3. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horab, the mountain of God. There, 
the angel of the Lord. There's our theophany again, right? Not an angel, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, though the bush was on fire, it didn't burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them into the land of good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. I want to stop there and acknowledge this idea of a sign. Because I think this is a little bit humorous here, if I'm honest. When I think of a sign from God, I think we're typically looking for a bit of encouragement or confirmation on something. We might have a hard act of obedience or a hard decision in front of us. So we think, Lord, I need a sign, right? Uh, you might be like, Lord, I, I really have in my heart that I want to go to Papua New Guinea as a missionary, but would you give me a sign? Would you maybe send somebody from Papua New Guinea into my life in the next week or a couple months and, Lord, just encourage me and, 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 con and uh, convince me that this is what I ought to do. But in God's economy, the way he speaks to Moses here is totally different. The sign for God is something like this. Moses, after you've completed this rescue mission and you get back here for a worship service, that'll be a sign to you that I sent you. He doesn't help him cross the bridge of a hard act of obedience. He basically is telling him, once you finish the job, you'll know that I was in it. And actually, it seems to me that that happens more in the scriptures than we might think. We're looking for a sign to confirm something, to help us in a hard act of faith. But it seems like God is just wanting to say, you exercise the faith, and then when you have success and you look back, you'll know that I was with you in the midst of it. The encouragement that I would give you is this. In your life, if God is calling you to a hard act of obedience, to a step of faith, and something that you know is from him, and you're waiting for some kind of sign, if you know he's telling you to do it, just do it. And you'll look back and see that he was with you in it. And then you are to declare his glory and his sovereignty for having helped you with it. Take the step of faith. Look back and thank him. That's not the way it typically goes naturally in my life. Naturally in my life, I'm kind of like, Lord, I don't know what to do. Would you show me? And then I'll do it. And if I have success, I'm happy to take the credit for it. That's my human nature. But it seems here that God says, take the step of faith. 
I'll make you successful, and then you give me the credit. Secondly, we're told that Moses was a faithful servant in God's household. Um, the word house here, uh, there's a lot of discussion on this. Some would say, well, this, seems, this must be just the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. You know, maybe it's kind of small, localized space. But I think the idea here should be more like household or family. All of the things of God, all of the affairs of God that Moses was entrusted with. Um, a number of years ago, Amy and I uh, took off in January for vacation, as we do, and uh, we were gone for a couple of weeks. And so as is customary in Fairbanks, Alaska in January, when you leave your house, you get a house sitter, right? You want everything to keep running. You need someone to take care of your dog, whatever. And we knew a young college guy up at UAF, and we thought, we can pitch this to him with a bit of a carrot. How would you like to get off campus for a couple of weeks? Uh, we'll make it worth your while. And uh, Huckleberry, our chocolate lab, will be here to keep you company. And if you want to have people over, that's fine. And you can use our house. In fact, you, the more you use it, the better. That'd be great. So he accepted uh, the offer. And so um, he came over and watched your house. We got home. And you're kind of curious. All right, how did this go? First time using this house, sitter. What are we going to find? And we walked in and immediately thought, this place is neater and cleaner than before we left. <laughs> this is amazing. And the dog didn't even get up to greet us because he had been played with so hard. He was wore out. He had been fed and watered. Uh, the guy, uh, no, no dishes in the sink or even in the dishwasher. Everything cleared. That's miraculous right there. He had vacuumed everything. And he vacuumed in rows, like perfect rows. It was like he was in a Zen garden or something, you know, like just <laughs> making these perfect rows in the living room. And on top of all of that, you think, that's pretty good. He baked us a banana bread and left it on the counter with a lovely note. And we thought, we got to leave more often. You know, have this guy over, clean things up around here. His name is Daniel, but that's all I'm telling you about him. Because <laughs> he's ours. <laughs> it was just lovely to have someone care for your things and your place and what matters to you in the way that you do. It was refreshing. It was a treat. It was delightful. And this is how God feels towards Moses. He was faithful in all of his house and all of the things that God loved and cared for and was doing with his people. And he saw Moses as faithful in doing that. And so it's, it's told to us actually twice in this passage, right? Early on in verse 2, he's faithful in all of God's house. But then it's repeated again in verse 5, and another word is interjected. Do you see it? Verse 5, Moses was a faithful what? Servant in God's house. And this is a really interesting word here in Hebrews. Uh, more often than not, when we find the word uh, servant in the New Testament, typically the Greek word behind it is doulos, which means bond servant or slave or indentured servant, you know, something that you've, you're on, under contract for, that kind of a thing. But the word that is used here is not doulos, it's therapon. It's only used this one time in all of the New Testament. And it means personal service freely rendered. In other words, this is the difference between a hired hand who clocks in, does a job, and clocks out immediately at five. That's a doulos. Or a friend 
who shows up to work alongside you until the task is complete because they love you. That's therapon. It's the second one that is used of Moses. And in fact, God says this explicitly in Exodus 33. He says, it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. A friend. So Moses is a pretty great guy, faithful servant in God's house. He confronted Pharaoh. He crossed the Red Sea. He led the grumbling Israelites for years in the desert. He did go up the mountain of the Lord. And when he came down and found them in a raging party, he interceded for them with God so that God would not abandon them. And he directed the building of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant so a sinful people would know how to worship a holy God. He was a faithful servant in all of God's house. And then thirdly here, Moses mediated a covenant between God and his people. Oftentimes when we look back at the Old Testament law and, and we see the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses, um, as New Testament Christians, we can kind of look back upon them sometimes with some criticism or um, a little bit of disappointment. You know, they didn't have it as good as we have it, right? So we see it as something inferior. But it's worth noting that when Israel got the law of God, they loved it. They really rejoiced to have it. They had been 400 years in captivity in Egypt, which was a polytheistic nation, worshiping many gods. And they, as a people, had lost connection to God and what it meant to worship him and what he was like. So when they're being delivered from Moses and he gives them the law from God, they delighted in it. And it was a lot less like rule-keeping for them and a lot more like marriage vows. Because this wasn't a contract, it was a covenant. Contract language is duty-based. You do this, 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 and this, I'll pay you this. But a covenant is relationally driven. It is two people saying, or two parties saying, we give ourselves to one another. The receiving of the law was more like a covenant of marriage and less than a contract of, of job responsibilities. And so Moses acted as an intercessor in this, almost like a marriage counselor between God and his people, mediating the covenant. He was faithful as a servant in all of God's house. And therefore, right, Moses was honored. The passage is interesting in verse 5. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house. But then it goes on to say this, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. Moses is a type pointing to Christ, one who would be greater than he. And so what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus is a true and greater Moses. How, you ask? Good question. Jesus also was appointed by God to rescue mankind. He, the word here is interesting. It says he is an apostle, which means sent one in the lowercase apostle, a sent one. Jesus was a sent one of God to carry out this errand. But the errand that Moses achieved, right, with the exodus and leading Israel out of captivity and out of bondage, the responsibility that Jesus performs is like a second exodus. And he doesn't just deliver us from earthly bondage. He delivers us from eternal bondage of sin and shame and punishment. It's a second exodus, a greater exodus. 
Um, if you turn your handout over on the back, I've included something here, and I'm not going to teach on it this morning. I'll just make you aware of it for time's sake. Uh, we've been talking about typology, and some of you are probably at times going, typology, I'm not so sure about this. Uh, I've heard mixed reviews on typology. And it can be done well, or it can be done poorly. Um, sometimes, may, some of you have probably heard, uh, you know, the story of Rahab. And you see this, uh, you know, we, we hear about a uh, scarlet cord coming out of the window, right? And we think, and this points to Jesus. No, it was a signal that this was the place, that's all. And so typology can be done poorly. There's four rules on the back here of how, we're, how we do it well, and I'm not going to touch on all of these, but just this last one of escalation. When typology is really there in the scripture, we see something that is initial, but we see it done greater and in a superior way after the fact. And that's what we find here with Moses and Jesus. So we see this really clearly in the second point here. Jesus was a faithful son over God's household. Notice the play on words that the author of Hebrews gives us here. Moses was a faithful servant in God's household. Jesus is a faithful son over God's household. And when you hear son here, you shouldn't just think, oh yeah, junior. Son here is like the equivalence with the father. It's the rightful heir, a royal one, a sent one. Moses was faithful as a servant in the house, but Jesus is God's son over the house and faithful in his task. And then thirdly here, Moses mediated a covenant, but Jesus mediates the new covenant, not one that is based upon our performance of laws, but one that is now based upon his performance of the law for us. We failed in the old covenant, but Jesus has succeeded for us in the new covenant. He's performed what we can't perform. He's achieved the righteousness for us and imputes it to us. So he mediates the new covenant between God and his people. Therefore, Jesus must be more greatly honored. And just practical application coming off of this, the author of Hebrews brackets his paragraph here with sort of two consequences of this idea that Jesus is a true and greater Moses. The first is this. He tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus. As great as Moses was to the Hebrews and their temptation to elevate Moses, the author of Hebrews confronts them and says, no, the hero here is Jesus. And I think we need reminding of that because in this world today, how easy is it to get distracted throughout the week on all of the affairs going on around us? One thing after another, another political scandal, another shooting, war still raging, gas prices with no end in sight, right? Groceries getting more and more expensive. My neighbor who's really irritating, whatever it might be. And you're going through the week and you think, ah, Lord, come back and end this, right? The advice here we're given is to fix our eyes on Jesus. He has already conquered this world. If we've trusted in him as our savior, he's already counted our sins against him and forgiven them and given us eternity with him. So we fix our eyes on Jesus. And then lastly, at the end here, he says, and we are his house, if indeed what? We hold on firmly to our confidence and our hope in which we glory. So there's a condition here. The evidence of saving faith is lasting faith. 
we have to persevere with the Lord. We fix our eyes on him and we persevere to the end. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, who is the true and greater Moses. What Moses came to do, faithful in your house, delivering your people, mediating the covenant, therefore honored, we see done in a greater way in Jesus, rescuing your people, not just from bondage, but from the bondage of sin. We see him, Lord, faithful, not just in the house, but over the house. He is supreme. He mediates the new covenant. He has become our righteousness. He has reconciled us to you. And therefore, he is to be honored. So, Lord, we honor him this morning with our hearts and with our lives and with our obedience. And we thank you for him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.